0: Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for the mercies you have shown us, the truth that you've revealed to us. We ask that your spirit will join us and lighten our minds, uh, renew our hearts, and help us to be more effective witnesses for you at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We're doing uh, Lesson 12 uh, in the uh, quarterly Genesis, and the title is Joseph, Prince of Egypt. In the second paragraph... Reads interestingly the whole next sequence of events, which were supposed to be about Joseph's success, are more about his brothers' repentance. Their back and forth journeys from Joseph to the fa- their father and the obstacles they encountered make them remember their wicked acts, Joseph, uh, wicked acts toward Joseph and their father, and they realize their iniquity toward God. Joseph's brothers live that whole experience as a divine judgment, and yet. The moving emotional conclusion which brings everyone to tears and joy also contains a message of forgiveness for them, despite their unjustifiable acts of evil. Joseph's brothers live that whole experience as a divine judgment? Okay. Well, well what, what kind of judgment would that be? Is that a judicial judgment? Uh, are they saying God examined the legality of their actions and made a ruling of guilty and then sentenced them to suffer many years of guilt and worry and anxiety and bad sleep and shame? And, and eventually God arranged for them to be falsely accused and and stealing back their money, uh, held in jail for three days, have Simeon restrained in Egypt while they go back for Benjamin and Benjamin's falsely accused. God God ordered all this. He He sentenced them to that. I don't think that's what they mean. Do we find anything in the experiences of Joseph's brothers that could qualify as judicial other than the false accusations brought by Joseph himself? Joseph's actions are not God's actions, are they? Is Joseph divine? So, so what, do, what is God, God's divine judgment? Divine judgment is what the lesson said. Divine judgment. Well, when you hear words like judgment, what's the question we're supposed to ask? What law lens are we looking through? Human law or God's design law, how reality is built to operate? Human law, made-up rules, require a judicial review and sentence conclusion and finding and infliction of punishment, that's how human law works. God's law, though, his judgments are always diagnostic, Search me and see the wicked way in me. And therapeutic. I judge that this is the condition, this is what's wrong, and I judge that this is what will be most redemptive in healing. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. God's judgments are always diagnostic and therapeutic. So Joseph's brothers, if we say this was divine judgment, what kind of judgment was it? It wasn't judicial, was it?
1: It was yes. Results of
0: their choices. She said results of their choices. Can you think of a Bible verse that, that describes a law involved here?
1: Whatsoever men sow, that shall I also reap.
0: What he sows, he will reap. Yes, that's a divine law. So what caused their guilt and shame and anxiety and fear? What, what was the cause of it? Wasn't it their sin against Joseph that caused that? And what caused them to be put through their trials with Joseph, being falsely accused and in prison? Wasn't this reaping what they had sown? In other words, uh, this isn't judicial punishment inflicted to pay for crimes, but it's because they treated Joseph the way they did that they revealed selfishness and untrustworthiness, abuse, jealousy in their own character, Joseph not being God. He can't read the secrets of their hearts. And so Joseph puts his brothers in situations that require them to make choices that reveal their character. And that was a direct fruit of the, the seeds they planted in Joseph's hearts about themselves. They're reaping in that relationship what they sowed had Joseph, had, had the brothers always treated Joseph with love and respect and self-sacrifice. And if instead of selling Joseph, if this is what happened, instead of them selling Joseph into slavery, uh, marauders came and, and grabbed Joseph and the brothers saw it and they, and they went with their swords to try to, to protect Joseph, but they were beaten back and, and left, um, wounded beside the road and Joseph is taken off into slavery while his brothers fight to save him. When the brothers come years later, for food, would, would, the, would their meeting have gone differently? Yes. Yeah. They're reaping what they sowed into the heart of their brother by their betrayal of him. Joseph is a real historic person who did real historic things. We have a reliable history recorded in scripture. However, these events also teach us the plan of salvation, the battle between sin, fear, and selfishness, righteousness, love, and trust. Joseph is a type of Christ that we've discussed. And in this scenario, in regard uh, to Joseph's actions, he's acting with diagnostic and therapeutic judgments toward his brother, toward his brothers. That's what he's doing. The difference between Joseph and Christ is that Joseph can't read their hearts, and so these are also informative to Joseph, Christ already knows our hearts, so he doesn't do this to have us reveal to Christ the nature of our hearts. Christ does this, when I mean this, puts us in various trials and circumstances to reveal to who? Us. us so that we will repent and find healing. Joseph judged that his brothers were selfish and untrustworthy, the last he knew of them and had joseph already forgiven them or, or, or not forgiven them forgiven them yeah. they were already forgiven by joseph notice that he was he was not seeking revenge or retaliation he had already but he but he couldn't trust them because he didn't know they were already forgiven by God,
1: too. Let's make
0: that clear. Yeah, and they were already for Yes, but they weren't reconciled. So reconciliation, though, requires the offended person to have forgiveness and goodwill in the heart. But the offender has to repent from the evil in their heart so they become a trustworthy person. If, if, if the offender remains an enemy, even though you're not mad at them, there, there can't be reconciliation. Joseph judged that in order for him to know whether they were trustworthy, a trial was necessary. But this wasn't a jury trial. It was a trial of experience. They had to be tried by events to reveal their character. And each, I want you to hear me now, I got this in bold in my notes. Each and every one of us will be tried by life events also. Not a judicial trial. A life experience trial. We will be in circumstances in life where we will be tried and we have to choose. Whose methods do we apply to our life, God's or the world's? How do we treat others? As you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. In God's judgment, we are not tried in a courtroom. We are tried by life and our choices. Then Joseph, after this, he judged that he could trust them and he revealed himself. God does this also. He judges our hearts. What's wrong? What we need? what, What is needed to bring us to repentance? If we refuse the easy, gentle, kind, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. If we refuse the revelation of his kindness, his love, his gentleness, because he loves us, he will either next remove the protection he's been protecting, his hedge of protection, and allow more painful life experiences to hit us, or he will bring specific therapeutic judgments to bear designed to lead us to repentance. These are not judicial. They're therapeutic. Here's a quote out of a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. See if you agree or disagree with this quotation. How great is the long-suffering of God toward the wicked, The idolatrous Philistines and backsliding Israel had alike enjoyed the gifts of his providence. Ten thousand unnoticed mercies were silently falling in the pathway of ungrateful, rebellious men. Every blessing spoke to them of the giver, but they were indifferent to his love. The forbearance of God was very, very great toward the children of men, but when they stubbornly persisted in their impenitence, he removed from them his protecting hand. They refused to listen to the voice of God in his created works. And the warnings, counsels, and reproof of his word, thus he was forced to speak to them through judgments. He speaks gently. We don't listen. He pulls back. So, little little son, Please, please, please don't touch the hot stove. I don't want you to get hurt, sweetie. I'm going to intervene. But, but eventually, okay, they touch it. They get burned. Pull back the protective hand. Eventually, you might have to speak with a more judgmental. Judgments brought to bear. Raising of the voice. Maybe some warming, not of the heart, but of the bottom. Sunday's lesson points our attention to Genesis 41.28 when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and it reads in Genesis 41.28 the following. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Unquote. The dream. Seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. So Joseph explains to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Does this mean God was the one who brought the famine? No. He's about to do it. You don't believe scripture? Listen, the Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. We believe scripture here. Okay. How's that working out for you? Really good. Good. But it says, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. If the Bible says that God did something or does something, does that mean God did it? Yes. Does that mean God allowed it to happen for a reason maybe? So, what about these texts? First Chronicles, oh, excuse me, Job one sixteen. These are the servants coming to Job. You know the story of Job. You know who who brought the harm to Job and all of Job's property? Was that God doing it or Satan? But this is what they tell Job. The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Well, we know very clearly that God did not do that, but it's still described in Scripture as the fire of God. How about this one? First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14. Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. How did Saul die? If you want a scripture, um, 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 5, Saul took out his own sword and fell on it violating the laws of health. <laughs> violating the laws of health. There you go. Right, yeah, so if you didn't know that, it's not healthy to fall on a sword. Okay. So so here we have scripture which is the inspired one. Saul falling on a sword or God putting him to death? Was there an angel that we couldn't see behind the scenes forcing Saul down on a sword? No. No, I don't want this. Is that what happened? What, was God playing mind tricks on Saul and, and basically getting him to be like the people in Jonestown who's willing to drink the Kool-Aid? So he took his own life, but only after God manipulated his mind. Is that, is that what, what, what it means? Hmm. So when the Bible says that God was about to do this, does that mean God was the active agent in bringing the famine or that God foresaw Saul? what was going to happen, and send a message of warning to protect from the famine. He understands climate change. He understands climate change. <laughs> it's good. If we look at this strategically through the lens of the great controversy and the principles and methods of how God runs his kingdom and the laws upon which he runs it, the design laws and God's goals, we can put this into context. I think just some clarity here. After Adam sinned in Eden, could any human being experience eternal life Without Jesus. So Genesis 3.15, right there, still in Eden, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, is coming to crush the serpent's head. Messiah is promised right there. The rest of the entire Old Testament narrative, the whole focus of the Old Testament, is fulfilling the promise of the coming Messiah to redeem the human race from the condition Adam put it in. That's the whole, that's why we focus where we focus. We don't focus on the Mayans and we don't focus on the Chinese, not because God didn't love them. Messiah wasn't coming through those branches of the human family. This is why we focus on not all of Abraham's kids. We don't focus on Ishmael's kids or Esau's kids. We focus down on Jacob because it's through Jacob's kids. Messiah comes. This is the focus because it's fulfilling the plan of salvation to bring Messiah. And this is the battle you're seeing waging in the Old Testament constantly, and Satan is now attacking. And so what he wants to do, think strategically. If this famine kills Jacob's family, who's that good for? Satan. Satan. Satan is the one, in my view, that's behind this famine coming. But God, in His foreknowledge, foresaw what was coming and sent a message to protect and provide for that.
1: I think there may have been a, a, a twofold uh, reason for it being phrased that way as well. God loved Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt was not only the secular government's head, but he was also the priest of the government, the, the, the priest of that caste and that that religion. So uh, he's wanting he's wanting to. Instill in Pharaoh's mind that there there is a there is a God bigger than all of your gods, and, and three or four hundred years later we he, he came so, and revisited that. So
0: the, So the next question, why does the Bible say it this way? Because it's recording what Joseph actually said to Pharaoh. This is what Joseph said to Pharaoh. Next question, well, why would Joseph say it this way to Pharaoh? Why wouldn't Joseph explain the great controversy to Pharaoh and explain about Satan and explain about the coming Messiah and explain about the God of heaven and explain the, the two sides that we understand? Why wouldn't he make that explanation? Why would he say simply, God has shown you what he's about to do?
1: Throwing pearls. to right. cast casting
0: pearls. Throw, so, casting pearls before swine. Well... Does that mean if, if if he had done that, that uh, Pharaoh would have uh, rejected the message of seven? It seems like Pharaoh accepted the message that God was about to do this. He 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 elevated Joseph. He did so I, I'm not I'm not sure necessarily he would have rejected it. What other what other? But but maybe
1: Joseph had interpreted the dreams of the of uh, uh, the prison guard. That's kind of where he got it from, wasn't it?
0: What is the common mindset? Of the people, including Pharaoh, of Egypt regarding supernatural things. That their God was most powerful.
1: The more powerful, the better.
0: Okay, so they worship power. There's no question about that. But but you said it in an interesting way. Their God was most powerful. Gods. Okay, now we're getting it. Now we're getting it. Gods. They're polytheistic. They have a God for the, the, the Nile. They have a God for the state of, the, for the dead. They have a God for the weather. They have a God for, they have a God for everything. Mm-hmm. So what happens, let me, let me finish this point. What happens if he presents the great controversy about the God of heaven, but he also has an enemy that's powerful enough to affect the weather? Might the polytheists who have gods for all these different things suddenly think, well, maybe it would be better for us to offer sacrifices to the God who's going to bring the famine rather than the God who can't stop him from bringing the famine? And Satan gets more followers. And so I think you'll find in the Old Testament the common culture uh, was polytheistic and god takes credit to himself in many of these things claiming to do things he doesn't do because he's trying to move them away from worshiping the good god and the bad god and offering sacrifices to the bad god who will bring punishment and so if we sacrifice our kids and stuff to the bad god then he wants. and you see this even without god endorsing it why do they sacrifice to molech why are they sacrificing to all these horrible gods because they don't they don't want that god to be mad at them and so if the prophets of God come along and say, yep, there's a supernatural being over here named Satan and he's got the power to, to give famine for seven years, well, maybe we can buy him off with our firstborn children if, and he won't do that. So I think this is one of the reasons why the Bible reads the way it does is because they were polytheists and God is trying to break them out of this idea. There's no other God but God. All this other stuff, they're not gods. Yes, yeah, you had a comment. We talked
1: about the seven years of famine brought by Satan. But they were preceded by seven years of plenty. Yes. So how do we then say God provided this, but Satan provided provide
0: the other? Yeah, I think that's actually a well way to say it. God, God foresaw what Satan was going to do, and God overruled and brought a, a harvest, a, a bountiful harvest, and a warning so they could prepare for what Satan was about to do. Uh, my understanding is that this is also a metaphor for anything, any temptation... No temptation has taken you except that which is common to man. And God will not permit you to be tempted more than you're able. But with every temptation, he provides a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. And God is providing escape here, as he always does provide provision for those who trust him. Yeah? Monday's lesson. Third paragraph focuses on the meeting where the brothers bow down to Joseph. And the second... uh uh which reads, second, this uh, providential meeting was described as a response. The linguistic and thematic echoes between uh, the two events underlie the character of just retribution. Hmm. This is the meeting. They come down, bow down before Joseph. And the linguistic and thematic echoes between the two events underline the character of just retribution. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole story because you all know the story of what happened here. They bought the grain. The money's put back in the sacks. They get caught. They brought back. You you know the whole story. I looked up retribution in the dictionary, just to be sure I'm not going to misunderstand what they're trying to say. And the dictionary definition of retribution reads, requital according to merits or deserts, especially for evil. Something given or inflicted in such requital. Well, I said, okay, what's requital? You all know what requital. That's a common one. We use that one all the time. So I looked up requital. And this is what requital means. To make repayment or return for uh, services, to make retaliation, uh, avenge, to retaliate on a person for wrong or injury. That's requital. So just retribution then would mean that he's seeking retaliation and avenge, and to avenge himself. When you read the story of Joseph and his brothers, their meeting, Joseph's actions, the outcome—do you see Joseph seeking retaliation to avenge a wrong, to make them pay? Do you see that anywhere? No. No, no. No. You see Joseph longing for reconciliation, a heart aching to reunite with his family, but unsure of whether he can trust them. So he creates scenarios so they where he can reveal whether he can trust them, so he can be reconciled. There's nothing in here about this. What is going on that the lesson authors—and I use this word on purpose pervert the scriptures like this. It's a perversion. It's an absolute 180 degree opposite of what actually happened. It's teaching a different mindset. One of imperial rules that require authoritarian infliction of punishment to pay back the wrongdoer for their wrong. This is human law construct. It's not how reality works in God's kingdom. Whoever wrote this has a wrong understanding of God's law. If we accept Satan's lie that God's law functions like human law, then we must believe that justice requires the lawgiver to use power to inflict punishment for lawbreaking. That's how human law works. If that's your premise, then God is always the source of pain, suffering, and death inflicted for sin. The Bible is very clear. Death does not come from God. God is a source of life. Satan is described as the murderer from the beginning. Satan is described in Hebrews as the one who has the power of death, and Christ came to destroy him, who holds the power of death that is the devil. Sin, the wage of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. The Bible is clear God is not the source of death. It does not come from him. But when you hold the lie of Satan in your mind about how God's law works, you end up teaching that God is the source of death to punish sin. This is Satan's greatest achievement, in my view. His greatest achievement is to embed people who believe in, in God with the lie about how God's law works so they actually go around promoting a false view of God while they claim to be honoring God such that they could crucify the Son of God, won Him off the cross to go home and honor God. Because the one they crucified, they claim, broke the law and you must punish lawbreakers. Bottom gray section reads, most of us surely have done things for which we are sorry. How can we, to whatever degree possible, make up for what we have done? This language, in my view, is ambiguous, meaning it could be understood in a way that's actually beneficial and helpful. But it also could be understood in a way that fuels Satan's methods and practices. Let's look at the healthy way to understand it, the law lens of design law. Uh, Sin damages the sinner, and it also damages, you can injure and harm people when you sin, others. Thus, if we truly repentant, we want to mitigate the harm that we've caused other people, and we seek to restore what we've taken if it's possible, but the motivation is for their best interest, not to make ourselves feel better that we've done a good thing, so we've kind of, you know, taken care of it because we did what we needed to do, so we could be good. No, it's for their best interest. Thus, if you look at the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, steps eight and nine uh, read the following: Step eight made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends. To them all. And then step nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Right. And that's right. That's exactly right. When you're really caring about the other person, sometimes you don't seek to make amends because to do so would inflict yourself upon people who <laughs> would only be more traumatized by your presence. So that's a healthy way to understand it. But this could also be understood in a unhealthy way through imposed law. In the mindset of having to make payments. Anybody heard about making payments recently? Jesus died to make payments. I understand that many of the, uh, the, the uh, camp meetings are really heavy on the uh, Jesus died to make payments kind of thinking. To appease. To assuage. To propitiate. To influence the one who was wrong to not be wrathful and angry. This is all pagan. It's not, it's not actually biblical. Offering God a sacrifice to turn away his wrath. Doing various good works as a means of balancing the scales. This is a common thing. Doing various penances. Purgatory, part of this idea of making up and paying back. Indulgences, same thing, part of this idea. Any form of offerings designed to alleviate guilt and make one feel better. Any form of works designed to make one feel like they've made up for their sin is a form of paying back. This is not biblical, it's pagan. Tuesday's lesson I'm kind of moving because I really want to get to Wednesday's lesson.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the le- lesson focuses on Joseph treating Benjamin with greater favor than his brothers with such large portions of food, etc. Uh, why did Joseph do it? Well, this is, we've already talked about it. It's reason.
1: Received the brothers
0: Exactly. Exactly. Why didn't Joseph simply say to his brothers, um, hey, I'm your brother Joseph. Have you all changed? Can I trust you now? And if they said, oh, Joseph, yes, yes, oh, yes, you can trust us, we'd never do anything like that again. (laughs) Which is almost certainly the response they'd get in that circumstance, isn't it? Uh, So why didn't he do that?
1: To see their heart, to see how honest and true they were now. They changed.
0: Uh, Oh, so are you saying people can say things out loud that are not necessarily reflective of who they truly are? Are you saying that could happen?
1: It can happen. Yeah, yes. Three situations where they could look back and, and say, hey, we did this, you know, we, to reflect, you know, to, to help them to reflect on what they did, even though they were changed.
0: Do you know, yeah, do you know how many people today have absolute incapacity? Incapac- Jesus talked in his day about the blind leading the blind. These weren't people who were visually blind. These are people who have no discernment. They can't see. In our society today, every single day, I see so many people who simply believe because somebody charismatic or somebody in a position of authority has made a claim or proclamation and said it. Some some news anchor, some politician, some government official has made some proclamation. Well, the CDC said, the FDA said, so-and-so politician said, yeah, they did say it. But is it true? And there's no, there's no discernment whatever. They just believe. Can we rely on what people say when we don't have a track record of their reliability? No. Worse, can we rely on what people say when we do have a track record of their unreliability? I mean, seriously, it's amazing to me if you look at the unreliability of what we have been fed from our national media sources the last several years and how many people still believe it and listen to them. It's unbelievable. The mature are those who develop a practice, the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5.14. The immature, they're still on milk. Waiting for someone to feed them, spoon feed them the answers. Can you though have somebody who's truly trustworthy? In other words, trustworthy in heart. They care about you. They, they love you. They want only your best interest. And, and, and you're sure of that. It's, it's not fake. If you had somebody like that, does that mean you could trust their recommendations and follow their guidance because you know they love you? No. They're human. They may have wrong information. They may have a wrong perspective. They may have done the calculations and come to the wrong answer. They told you that they balanced your checkbook and you had three thousand in it. Uh, that doesn't mean, and and, they're, and they honestly believe that and they did their best, but they're not very good in math and you only had three hundred in it. Okay? You can't trust the, the the bottom line there, not because they're trying to deceive or trying to harm. The point being is Romans fourteen five. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. You must understand the issues and come to your own conclusions. So yes, hear and think, but understand people stand in different positions. They process information differently. They, they may, with all innocence, come to a, a a false conclusion without any malice whatsoever. Isn't that true? Yeah. Wednesday's lesson. Now we're going to get some fun stuff. Third paragraph reads, uh, and this is the title of the lesson, is the divination cup. You remember the cup that was put in Benjamin's bag was the cup of Joseph's divination. Divination, spiritual fortune-telling, reading the tea leaves, uh, looking at your crystal ball, uh, trying to discern the secrets of what other people are doing. This is divination. So the lesson reads, and it's going to make a quotation of Patriarchs and Prophets in the middle of this paragraph, that Joseph was using a divination cup did not mean that he believed in its power. Joseph, and here's the quote, had never claimed the power of divination, but was willing to have them believe he could read the secrets of their lives. Unquote. Now, let's actually go to Scripture. Uh, first off, aren't we relieved to read from the commentary here called Patriarchs and Prophets that Joseph did not practice divination or any types of spiritualism or fortune telling or black magic? Aren't we? Aren't we relieved to to to, to know that? Mm-hmm. Yes, we are. <laughs> but what transpired here is a little more than the way it was described. Here is what Joseph instructed his servants to say to his brothers when they pulled his cup from benjamin's bag quote genesis 44 5 quote isn't this the cup my master drinks from and he also uses for divination unquote so this isn't merely allowing the brothers to come to their own flawed conclusion it is purposeful planting the idea for misdirection and misleading their minds Isn't this a form of deception to tell them it's a cup of divination that they wouldn't have known when he wasn't actually practicing divination? If it's deception, is it wrong? Is this sin? Oh, I have some more. So maybe just pause on that. We'll come back to it. Do we have any examples of people working with God or for God who actually actively deceived or lied? Rahab. Okay, that's the first one that comes. Rahab hid the spies and lied, and of course, she's in the lineage of Christ, and, and she's also in the hall of faith in Hebrews. But let's move past her. What about prophets of God, inspired of God, who purposely misled and deceived? Well, let's look at 1 Kings 20. 1 Kings 20, uh, verse 35 to 43. This is from the NIV. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companion, Strike me with your weapon, but the man refused. So the prophet said, because you have disobeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. The prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king, Ahab, King Ahab. He disguised himself with a headband down over his eyes. As the king passed, the prophet called out to him, your servant, speaking about himself, your servant went to the thick of battle. And someone came to me with a captive and said, guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I determined should die Therefore your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Did the prophet lie here? Had he gone to battle? Had he been given someone to watch? Had he let that person escape? Had he been threatened with, with a, a life or a fine if he let that had any of that happened? Hmm. Was he deceiving Ahab? Was it sin? Well, let's go to another one. We'll, we'll wrap these up. Let's go to another one. How about 1 Kings 13, where Jeroboam was confronted by the prophet of the Lord, prophesying about the birth of Josiah, and Jeroboam reaches out his hand to grab the prophet. His hand withers. The altar splits in two. You know the story. Jeroboam asks the prophet to pray for his hand to be restored, and he did, and it was. Jeroboam wants to treat the prophet to a grand feast, but the prophet replies that the Lord has instructed him not to eat bread or drink water or return by the same way. He must go home without bread and water and go a different way. But on his way back, he met an older prophet. And this is what happened. I'll read it to you from uh, 1 Kings thirteen, fifteen through 32. So the prophet said to him, come home and eat with me. The man of God said, this is the young prophet who confronted Jeroboam. The man of God said, I cannot return back to you, uh, Back, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water, There or return by uh, the way you came. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Next words in scripture. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank at his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back, cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. You came and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your father's. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his body was thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body thrown down with the lion standing beside the body, and they went and reported it to the city where the old prophet lived. When the prophet who had brought him back from the journey heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion, which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord had warned him. The prophet said to the sons, saddle the donkey for me. And so they did. Then he went out and found the body thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb, and they mourned over him and said, O my brother, after burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared was the word of the Lord against the altar of Bethel and against the shrines of the high places in the towns of Samaria uh, will certainly come true. Don't understand it at all. Don't understand it at all. Was it sin for the older prophet to lie to him? Was the older prophet a false prophet, or was this a true prophet? False? Then why did it come true, what he said would happen to the young prophet? Did it sound like the old prophet had animosity toward the young prophet, or he respected and admired him? Wanted to be buried with him. Did it sound like God was involved or not involved when you have the lion and the donkey standing by and the lion leaves the donkey alone? The donkey doesn't run away. It says it repeatedly. Is that natural? If you had a lion come near a donkey, does the donkey just stand there calmly? No. It does not. So does it sound like this was a natural event? No, it doesn't. I'll keep you cogitating on that one. Here's another one. First, uh, First Kings 22. The setting is Ahab meeting with Jehoshaphat, trying to get Jehoshaphat to join him in attacking Ramoth Gilead. The prophet Micaiah is called because all the prophets of Baal have said, "Yes, you'll win, you'll win, you win." And Jehoshaphat says, "Well, is there a prophet of the Lord?" Well, I hate the prophets of the Lord. Ahab said because I always say bad things about me. So they call Micaiah, and Micaiah comes, and here's what the scriptures read. Micaiah continued. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramath Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that finally a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him by what means the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets, he said. You shall succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put lying spirits in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. You all look stunned. (laughs) Does the Lord lie? Does the Lord send lying spirits? Don't you believe scripture? (laughs) Don't we believe the Bible? Didn't it just say it? God said it. The Bible said it. Aren't we supposed to believe it? Who are we to question? We aren't to reason. Understand, I'm being a little facetious and mocking, but this is the type of stuff I get all the time on other passages of scripture. When we, when we interpret the other passages of Scripture about God's wrath and anger and the, and the fires that consume and so forth, they will go, you, don't you take it as it reads? We, we take the Bible as it reads. We don't interpret. You throw these texts at them, you'll find lots of interpretation going on. They won't take it as it reads. And rightly so. How do we understand this? We don't. The, I, the, I, think this <laughs> I think these are pretty straightforward and easy to understand. <laughs> First off, I think that's an accurate transcript of what Micaiah said to Ahab. It's a historical record. That's what Micaiah said. Does Micaiah's verbal presentation to Ahab mean that's accurately what's happening in heaven? No, not, no, not at all. What is the if you if you take the message and you believe the message that Micaiah sends to Ahab, if Ahab believes it what would he do?
1: Not go to battle.
0: Not go to war. Oh, this is a message crafted to harm Ahab or protect Ahab? Protect him. Protect him.
1: So, what? On To instill some distrust in the prophets of Baal.
0: Ooh, and instill distrust in the prophets of Baal also. Not just protect him from Ramoth Gilead, but maybe get him to stop trusting the false prophets. But why would it have to be phrased this way? Well, he's a worshiper of Baal. The powerful gods, that's who they worship. There also has polytheism. Same thing we talked about a moment ago with Pharaoh. He doesn't want to endorse the concept of another supernatural being, being, being the ones that the Baal worshippers are getting their inspiration from. He wants to have all minds turned to him, the only true God, so he takes credit for the lies, to to disabuse the idea of worshiping other gods, and also to send a warning. You've been lied to. If you go with those lies from the prophets of Baal, you're going to go to your destruction. And that's exactly what happened. Did Joseph and the various other prophets I read about mislead? Did they present things in a false light? Uh, purposely to cause the other party to draw false conclusions. Did did they do this? Have I made a case that they did? Yes or no? Yes. They've done this. Was it sin? Was it sin? What's the commandment say? Exodus 20, 16. It doesn't say thou shalt not lie. It doesn't say. uh, That's just a very important point. It actually does not say thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. In the NIV it says, thou shalt not give false testimony against your neighbor. Were these various deceits by these various people and prophets bearing false witness against somebody? Were they designed to harm the people that they were conversing with? Or every one of them, you might say, well, the, the one with the old prophet and the young prophet was. I actually think it had a larger purpose. It was, remember we talked about trials? Everyone will be tried by your life experiences. That prophet, the young one, as by his own testimony said, the word of the Lord came to him, and he had a direct word from the Lord what the Lord wanted him to do for him. And somebody else came and said, what the Lord has come to me and told me you should do this. Tell me, tell me now what you see as the problem here.
1: Do you believe what God
0: told you directly, or what someone said God said? It's okay. So, even if this man is another prophet, which evidently he is, don't we already have evidence that God is not only capable, but willing to directly communicate with the young prophet? So, the answer to the old prophet that would have been righteous would have been, well, if God wants me to come and eat with you now, God is quite capable of informing me of that. But until he does, I'm going to go with what the Lord has shown me to do with my life, not what you tell me you think the Lord wants me to do with my life. It was, a test. It was absolutely, uh, for, for a couple of reasons, it's in Scripture, for this very purpose. Be careful who you trust. trust. Wow. <laughs> You are responsible before God for the decisions you make to carry out what he has convicted and shown you to do in your life, even if another messenger from God comes to you and tells you something different. If God has communicated to you a direction for you to go, it's your responsibility to fulfill it. I don't think this young prophet is lost. I think we'll see him in heaven. And he loved the Lord enough that even though he made this mistake here, when we get to heaven, he will be happy his life got to be used for this lesson so that others will learn it and not be duped by charismatic or even messengers from the Lord. George. You got a little of my thunder, but I'm not sure if Ahab's going to be saved or not. But to see the efforts that God goes to to try to make sure he has a, makes a good choice. Because even as Ahab's dying, Maybe he surrendered, maybe he didn't. But I love the part how, you know this young prophet may be there, and we will learn by his mistakes. It's like we learn from David's mistakes and Adam's mistakes. So it's neat to see how God is such a hound of heaven trying to do whatever it takes so we will make the right decision ultimately. Do you remember when Nathan went to King David after the Bathsheba incident? He told him a story about a poor man with one little ewe lamb. And a rich man who took it and slaughtered it for a feast, remember? Was he telling the truth? Did that actually happen, as far as we know? No, he made up a story. But was he bearing false witness against David? He was bearing false witness against David when he told the story? No, he was not bearing, he was not breaking the commandment. Notice, every one of these deceits were actually to help uncover corruption in the minds of the person help them see through the corruption in their own mind or heart. That's what they were for. Is there a difference between these deceits told by the prophets that I've read in scripture here and the the falsehoods or lies told by Simeon and Levi at Shechem? Do you remember those lies? Talked about it. Dinah gets uh, sexually assaulted by Shechem at Shechem. Shechem is the man. Shechem is the city. (laughs) Okay. And then Shechem, the young prince, is repentant and dinah evidently wants to say because she voluntarily stays in the city with him and and he he wants to marry her make her princess and and he goes to the family and offers what do whatever he can but whatever bride price you want do whatever and they say oh yes we'd love to have you but you'll have to be circumcised and all the men will have to be circumcised remember the story and then after the third day when they're all in fever uh, levi and uh, simeon went in and killed all the men and took all the women and children as captives as slaves and took all their property what was the deceit? told by Simon and Levi, the same as the ones you've heard from these prophets. No. What's the difference? They were, they were out to harm them. These were deceits told to exploit, to take advantage, to hurt, to harm. What about truth-telling? Can truth-telling, actual, factual truth-telling, be sinful? Yes. Can people tell truths for the purpose of causing harm, injury to another person's reputation for evil purposes? But their truths being, I'm just speaking the truth. <laughs> well, you guys know that I'm a psychiatrist. And you all know that I have an ethical, moral, and legal responsibility to keep confidences that are told to me. You all know that, right? including whether someone's my patient or not. I don't disclose that information. They get to disclose it, but I don't disclose it. I remember one time I was in the mall and, uh, and saw somebody in a store, and uh, Dr. Jennings across the mall, I mean, bigger room than the doctor. That's my psychiatrist. Okay. <laughs> okay. They're certainly free to do that. <laughs> but I am not, am I? So I don't I don't even say hi to people that I recognize there's my patients when I'm out. I ignore them. I'm not being rude. I'm protecting their, they might be with somebody, a friend or a family, doesn't know they're seeing. How do you know? See the stress I could cause people. But I put this to you because what would be the righteous response for me? If I had a patient, maybe a pastor who's come to see me who's struggling with an addiction problem because he's convicted that he wants to have victory of his addiction, but he wants some professional help in, in struggling with his addiction, I, I don't know him from any other place in society. I only know him as my patient. And then one day, one of you call him up to me and say, hey, do you know pastor so-and-so? Well, I I have an ethical and moral obligation. It's also legal. I can't answer that question. Would that be what I should say because I don't want to lie? Should I just. Did you hear me, Dr. Jennings? <gasps> oh, you can't answer that, can <gasps> Or should I simply say, no, I don't know them? Yeah. I'm lying. Am I sinning?
1: No. no. Comment. I could say, yes, I think I've heard of, heard of the name. today. Tell me about him.
0: <laughs> Where'd you hear of him? See, when I present this, classically, the, the responses are some form of misdirection as a response. Yeah, I think I've heard of him. Uh, where do you know him from? <laughs> some form of misdirection is the answer. Well, let me read you the, uh, a quote out of Sons and Daughters of God. See if you agree or disagree with this description. The ninth commandment, which is thou shalt not bear false witness uh requires of us an inviolable regard for the exact truth in every declaration by which the character of our fellow man may be affected. The tongue, which is kept so little under the control of the human agent, is to be bridled by strong conscientious principles, by the law of love toward God and man. False speaking in any manner, every attempt of purpose to deceive our neighbor are here included. Any intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood, by a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression Expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as effectually as by words. All intentional overstatements, every hint of insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous or exaggerated impression, even the statement of fact. In such a manner to mislead is falsehood. This precept forbids every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation by misrepresentations or evil surmising, by slander or tail Even the intentional suppression of truth by which injury may result to another is a violation of the ninth commandment. Now, don't you feel a lot of loopholes were left there? So what do you think about this... uh, tending to want to, like, nuance it some way. What do you think about? So if you take this description as this encompassing, all-inclusive description of violations of the Ninth Commandment, then did Joseph and all those prophets break it? Yes. Any other thoughts? I have one vote for yes. (laughs)
1: According to that, it sounds like it.
0: The answer is no, according to that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an attempt to
0: damage. Because it's twice in here, she said, every declaration by which the character of our fellow man may be affected, or this precepts forbid every effort to injure our neighbor's reputation. All of these things that are designed to harm another is included because it's the law of love. But when I say no in the circumstances I gave you, that is not designed to harm. That's designed to protect. And in fact, if I said yes, that would harm my neighbor's reputation. And that's where she meant even truth-telling that harms breaks the ninth commandment. That's what she said. truth, Factual truth-telling that harm or injure break the ninth commandment of bearing false witness. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
0: is it like Satan telling Saul the truth in the form of Samuel as
1: a ghost, or is that a different...
0: Well, he didn't tell him the truth.
1: So you will go to battle, and you and your sons will die.
0: Go read Prophets and Kings on that. He didn't tell the truth. Okay. Because he can't tell the future. He doesn't know the future. True. He, he, he can reason from cause to effect. He, what he told was a message designed to discourage and dishearten. Mm-hmm. That, and to eventually injure. That became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay. Okay? That's what it became. But it wasn't the truth, because he didn't know the future. No. Fair enough. And what would happen if, if after that Ahab would have gone back, truly repented, called for the prophet Samuel, um, asked... Uh, at if Saul would have gone and that is, yes if King Saul went back and and repented and asked for the prophet Samuel and truly had a change of heart and then uh and then asked the Lord uh, whether they should go bed, and the Lord now says now yes you will go with my might that we saw many times the Lord didn't go with them and then he did okay then the outcome is different so that so, so I don't think he he was telling truth I think he was purposely deceiving there to discourage okay so lying is okay as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. <laughs> so lying is okay as long as it doesn't. So I was afraid somebody was going to draw that conclusion. <laughs> okay. Just
1: want to make sure I'm clear. <laughs> I
0: didn't. I, you know, I never said those words, did I? No. no.
1: Lying is okay what?
0: It's, it doesn't hurt anyone. Said for protection. For protection. There are circumstances. I, let me tell you, every one of you lie. <laughs> All the time. Understanding an intention to deceive what people think about you or others. When you put makeup on, you're lying. Yeah. <laughs> you are. We've
1: been been
0: you are lying. You are presenting yourself with a false face. It's true. You're covering up things you don't want people to see about you. It's a form of deception. Back. No. You, you, may, you may think I'm being extreme, but it's true. You don't want people to see you the way you see yourself in the mirror. And so you present yourself in a way to be seen differently than you truly are. And, and back in the 16 or 1700s in Britain, they actually passed a law uh, making it illegal for women to wear makeup because men were marrying these women and they got home and found out they weren't exactly what they looked like. <laughs> truly. <laughs> it's true.
1: Same thing's true about wearing clothes.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> she says same thing's true about wearing clothes Okay, I guess it depends on what you're covering <laughs> but, but the bottom line is it, it is really about, as far as I can tell and this, this conversation is for the mature it's not for the immature the child will take this and say now it's okay for me to lie no it's okay for you to have an honest heart of integrity that seeks to always bless God and bless other people. Okay, That's what it's about. You can't make a rule up. When you, once you go down rules, the rules are Satan's, Satan's domain. The principles and the designs of God, loving God and loving others, are God's domain. And you will find circumstances in life where it is, like the one I gave you, I think it is absolutely righteous in those circumstances for me to say, no, I don't know that person. Even though it's factually not true. I could contextualize it in my mind. I don't know them socially, and I know that's what you meant. <laughs> so therefore, I'm not lying, because you weren't asking if I know them as my patient. That's not the question. I infer that what you were asking if I know them in the community. Okay? That's, that's, okay? that's what we do. And if you need to do that, great. But the, the bigger principle is to love your neighbor yeah. and to not do things that will harm them in any willful or volitional or purposeful act. That's the bigger principle here. And then you seek to redeem them by bringing them back to Christ. And all these stories I told you about the prophets, that they told these little deceptions, or Joseph did these deceptions. It was the purpose of the divination cup and this idea? It was to get them to believe he knew something and that they couldn't argue their way out of it. That's what it was about, to test their characters. And it ultimately brought them to redemption and reconciliation. Well, we don't have time for any more, so we're, we're over time. Let's, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we really do want to grow to be like you, to be people who are consistently reliable and honest in heart and in motive, seeking to honor you, uplift you, live your kingdom, and, and, and love our neighbors to do what's best for them. This, cause, this requires wisdom and circumstances on what are the best responses to give in any particular moment. And we can't set rules for that, but we can have our hearts set right with you so that we're always seeking to honor you and love our neighbors, and we ask for that now. Give us wisdom as we uh, as we go out this week to be representatives for you in this world, and I pray avenues will open up that the final message of mercy will lighten the world, and you'll come soon. We pray in your holy name.
1: Amen. Amen.